welcome to the Glow Journal podcast, a conversation with the beautiful minds behind the world's biggest beauty brands. I'm your host, beauty writer Gemma Watts, and in this episode, I'm joined by the co-founders of Goldfadden MD, Lisa Goldfadden and Lauren Walk Goldfadden. Despite officially launching in 2013, Goldfadden MD technically begun in Dr. Gary Goldfadden's dermatology practice about 40 years ago. Lisa, his daughter, spent the early part of her working life in arts and education, while Lauren, his daughter-in-law, spent hers working on ad campaigns for the likes of Coca-Cola, Volkswagen and Burger King. While both had an interest in beauty and an understanding of the clean movement that was beginning to build momentum, it wasn't until friends of the family started asking for access to Dr. Goldfadden's clinical formulas that Lisa and Lauren realised they had family ties to a brand worth developing. Goldfadden MD was the very first brand to bridge the gap between doctor brands and clean beauty. The formulas spoke for themselves. However, having been told by multiple parties, I don't believe in this concept, the real challenge for Lisa and Lauren was convincing retailers that Goldfadden MD was worthy of shelf space. Worthy it proved to be. And what began as one hero product was swiftly built out into an entire portfolio with every single product designed to address the most common skin concerns that Dr. Goldfadden was finding himself presented with in clinic. In this conversation, Lisa and Lauren share how a former fraternity brother is largely to thank for Goldfadden MD's inception, the lessons from their respective careers in education and advertising that have helped them build a successful business, and the importance of finding designers, copywriters, and vendors who understand and align with your brand. Now, Lisa, I know that you grew up around science and given that your father is a doctor, which of course we will talk about more later, and your mother a nurse. Let's begin there. What is your very earliest memory of beauty? So my earliest memory of beauty was and is really my mother's sort of skincare regime, I guess you could call it. And I always was fascinated watching her, you know, take off the day and, you know, use something that eventually evolved into um, what today is our, our doctor scrub. And just the care that she took, and my mother has really beautiful skin and has really taken care of her skin. And it was just sort of this like methodical, you know, thing watching her and it was very soothing for me. So really learning from a young age, how important it is to care for your skin, to take your makeup off, um, to sort of have those rituals and that kind of feel good moment for yourself. And then watching her put on, you know, her night creams. And as a little kid, I mean, it's just like, you know, you idolize your mom and you want to, you know, that's like your female figure you look up to and you really want to grow up someday and look like that. So for me, it was, it was really watching her, um, with her skincare, which is, it's, 
it's no surprise being married to a dermatologist, but uh, as a young child, I certainly wasn't like, oh, and we're going to go on and like build a skincare brand. But it's just sort of funny when I think back on, you know, what I remember like seeing going on in her dressing room in her bathroom. It was it was really taking care of your skin. I've read that you grew up in quite a natural household, something that I've heard you describe as an umbrella of health and wellness. Now, today, that's not all that out of the ordinary, but at that time, it was a little different. I've spoken to a few brand founders on this podcast who grew up in a similar way, in a similar household, and a lot of them had said that they felt a bit different at school, like they just wanted to finish school, go get fast food or whatever with their friends. And they didn't really understand the benefits of that lifestyle until they were much older. What was your experience with that like? Did you feel a bit different or did you understand why you were doing this quite early on? Yeah. I mean, I think there were definitely times like if we were, if I were to go, you know, have a sleepover at a girlfriend's house, you know, even in elementary school, second, third, fourth grade, what have you. I, you know, can remember a few times like seeing foods I had never seen before. Um, like I can remember the first time I saw, I don't know if you have them in Australia. Do, they're like an old fashioned American junk food called Twinkies. Yeah. I, you it, can get them at specialty stores here, but I know yeah. what you're talking about. And I remember seeing a Twinkie for the first time and I was served it like after swimming at someone's home. And I remember asking the neighbor, it was a neighbor of ours, like, I, am I allowed to have this? Because I knew I wasn't allowed to have it. But, you know, you're going to say the eight-year-old, you put sugar in front of them, they're going to eat it. So, um, you know, I definitely remember times like that. But I also understood, I think, from a really young age, and maybe not fully, but I had some idea um, about things that were not good for us and not good for you as you are growing and as an adult as well. Um, because my father was so kind of adamant about telling us those things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I knew about red dye and foods and how that could be, you know, a cancer causer. I mean, what nine-year-olds, I mean, at the time, I'm sure yeah. adults looked at me like, what a weird kid, but I knew that stuff because I heard about it in, in around my household. Um, but it was interesting because when we were growing up, and as you mentioned, my mom was a nurse, um, and then she went back to get her master's in social work. So we were left one night a week when she would go to school with my father, and it was his responsibility to cook us dinner. And my brother and I laugh about this all the time, and Lauren loves this story, but my dad would make us tofu and he would put it in like a frying pan, but not like with yummy oil or salt or anything like that. It was like with, and I'm not kidding, Dijon mustard and like vinegar for oh kids. Oh my God. Yeah. But he ate this way with sesame seeds and then we'd have some spinach. I mean, and it was so torturous as a child, but looking back on it, I, of course, I'm so grateful because you know, I do lead a healthy, as healthy as, you know, you can be lifestyle um, and understand, you know, of course there's balance in everything, but if there's, I think one thing I took from that is, is really like, you know, balancing it out. So like with the tofu, the burnt tofu and the mustard, you know, we probably should have gotten like a piece of cake or a cookie or something to kind of balance it out. Now, Lauren, what is your earliest beauty memory? Um, 
my earliest beauty memory, my mom always had this fabulous drawer in, in her bathroom where all her makeup was, and I was never allowed to go in there. And so I think, I think I was, I was enamored by the store. And when I did have the opportunity to get in there, um, it was sort of magic for me. I always loved to play dress up, but I just remember as a little girl sort of watching my mom get ready if she went out to dinner and like put on her red lipstick and her mascara and just thinking, oh my gosh, this is so fun. I can't wait to, to do this someday. My mom didn't wear a lot of makeup, but it was just those like two moments when I saw that red lip go on and that mascara, you know, just applied to her lashes. It was just, you saw this woman just sort of open up. And so I think I was always, obviously as a little girl, I think drawn to to beauty in the, in the way that I was viewing my mother and how it made her feel. Um, and this iconic beauty drawer that I was not allowed to get into. So that's sort of my, my earliest memory of beauty. And I've loved it ever since. I had a similar experience. Gemma, don't you dare go into yes. my bathroom. Oh, yes. Yes. So Lauren, what did you think that you might be when you grew up? I understand that your background is in advertising and marketing. Was that always the goal? I think so. I was, you know, I don't know if it was specifically, you know, at a young age, I identified myself with going into marketing or advertising per mm -hmm. se, but I was, um, I was quite creative and I always wanted to apply that to something. I didn't know what, um, and I, I love to learn. I was sort of, um, one that always liked to, to try different jobs and ask questions and, um, just, just understand the function of functions of the world, if you will. Um, and I think when I discovered that there was an industry that you could be in that allowed for you to travel and be creative and see different aspects of production, that really sparked my interest. And so right out of high school, um, you know, going into college, I knew that I wanted to study advertising and um, and, and marketing, which sort of goes hand to hand. And that's really sort of where, where my passion begun. Um, and, and really that meant building brands. And I went to go work at a very large advertising agency. Um, and I worked on brands like Slim Jim, which is a um, beef jerky stick, um, sort of the original, if you very will. Very on brand. <laughs> Very on brand. And it was like, I spoke to basically 19 year old, you know, skateboarder boys. That's like what we had to, you know, figure out our, our advertising all the way to global brands like Coke, Coca-Cola and Volkswagen. Um, but I worked on this really special project where I got to launch a brand called method which um here in yes, the u.s you i know read method? about this i did when i was doing my digging this was your okay. first taste of clean beauty yeah so so the the agency that i worked for you know took this brand on i think because they really believed in the brand it was there was virtually nothing on the market in the clean um household cleaner mm. space there was one brand and it was sort of you know, very granola and this method sort of came on the picture and they had this beautiful um, custom mold design bottles that really spoke to sort of a modern approach to um, clean household items. And I was put on this product. It was a very small project for us. And we launched the brand into uh, Target and I just, I loved it. I loved, 
I loved watching the success of this small brand. I loved the, the, the ethos that it stood behind and offering better, cleaner for you, you know, products that to stay in the home and be able to swap out those chemicals. And, um, so yeah, that was sort of, I think coming back to beauty in some ways, um, that was really at the start of sort of this movement across consumer products of, of it being clean back in sort of the early 2000s. Um, so yeah, it sort of came full circle for me. Yeah. It sounds like you've both sort of come full circle because Lisa, I understand that you had careers entirely separate to beauty in studio arts and education. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, sure. So in my undergraduate um, degree is in studio art and art history, which Mm -hmm. I absolutely loved. Um, I'm also an artist for fun. I mean, I, when, when I was in high school and like even a little bit younger than that, I thought I was going to like be a professional photographer. I was super, super into that. And then when I got into undergraduate, um, I started dabbling in painting and printmaking and got, um, very involved in that and, you know, graduated college, with the idea that I was going to go back and get my master's in, in printmaking. And I took, you know, like six months off. I like finished college a a quarter early. I took some time, did a little traveling and really came to the conclusion that, you know, I could continue to make my art for myself um, or whatever path that would go down. But as far as really, you know, etching out a career path for myself, I, I wanted to go back and get a master's in something that was going to be a little bit more, um, I guess, tangible in the sense of having like a real, having a real career, not that making art isn't a real career, but I, I come from a family and like a work ethic where I kind of needed to be like, okay, I'm going to get this master's and this is what I'm going to actually do with it to make some money and like, you know, whatever. So yeah, income um, is a very important thing. (laughs) So I ended up um, getting my master's in museum education. And then um, it was a dual master's with childhood education as well. And so what that enabled me to do was once I graduated was to go and teach in um, museum settings. And I happened to be living in New York city at the time and I got a wonderful opportunity to work at the Museum of Television and Radio, which is called the Paley Museum, or used to be called the Paley Museum. And it was really wonderful because this program serviced um, children from all schools, private and public, throughout um, New York and New Jersey, um, visitors from across the world. And basically what the education department was responsible for was building out curriculum to educate children and adults about the library which the um, museum housed. And this museum is very special and it houses um, basically radio recordings from the beginning of radio. Mm -hmm. And it has a huge library of um, (laughs) everything from TV shows from when television first started to public service announcements, to news footage. For example, we built an entire curriculum around the Vietnam War and the footage we had from, you know, all the news across the world at the time. So it was a very interesting, um, very fulfilling job. Got to work with all ages um, from kindergarten up to, 
you know, high schoolers, and then of course, you know, any um, visitors that were coming from across the world to, um, to visit our museum. And, you know, I think to bring it back to, you know, what we've done and what I do now, you know, I, I really look at education and, you know, as part of storytelling and, you know, educating, again, a kindergartner is really not that much different. I mean, the content is going to be different than educating an adult about skincare and about wellness, but it's really about how you speak to each other. Um, it's about understanding how certain people learn that, you know, in, in better ways than other people do. Some people are more visual. Some people are going to be, you know, more um, touch and feel. And I, I just think it gave me a great, you know, uh, diving board to build out this education piece um, and to really speak to our consumer um, about what it is we do and why I can help them and, you know, how that can be part of, of their um, life. Well, you've given me a perfect segue because I wanted to ask if there were any lessons that you both picked up from those careers that you had before launching the brand that you are finding that you are still applying to your work now? I do. I talk about this all the time and um, I always sort of live by, it's one of my sort of preachings, but something that I stand really close to and that um, there's always a way. And so sort of being flexible and, and sort of molding to figure out a solution to what you want. And the ultimate sort of one liner there is I, I always say that no is never no, it's not no, not for now. Um, and so it's just figuring out a way to evolve and change and expand and grow, um, in order to get to the place that you want. And I've, I've always, from the beginning, um, of my, career to, to the present day I've always sort of stood by that I love that what about you Lisa so I have two biggies my first one is I think it's important and to stay um, humble and open to learning because there's always more to learn no matter how far along you are in your career I how old you are how young you are I I, I just think in life let alone your career and your business, there is always room to learn. And I think by staying open, that's a great way as opposed to, I think, you know, sometimes that can feel a little threatening, like, you know, things evolve and things are happening and, you know, you kind of need to like move with the, you know, with the, the punches. But I think by just being open to things and being positive, that really allows you to kind of get to the next level and keep you know, evolving forward, which is what we all want to do, right? Personally mm. and business-wise. And then also something we always talk about um, is that, you know, you you have to be kind with however you're leading in life, it should be with your kindness. And you just, you just, first of all, it's the right nice thing to do, but you also just, you never know who you're going to cross paths with again and treating people with the utmost respect and dignity whether they are below you as far as like your job level or above you or what have you, because we have seen it numerous times, you know, somebody who just started a job two weeks ago could end up being a very, you know, important buyer someday or, or whatever. And it's just, you got to treat people nice and people remember that, you know? 
Especially it's if not it's a difficult thing. It's not hard no. to be nice, but it's still a pleasant surprise when people are, really unfortunately. No, I know. I know. It sounds really so hard. elementary, you know. It does, but it's not not the case. No, we've just got to keep reminding everyone. Yes. <laughs> so, Godfadden MD, let's get into it. The two of you are sisters-in-law. That's how Lauren enters the family fold. Dr. Goldfadden has been formulating topical skincare products for his dermatology patients for 35 years before you officially launched the brand. So let's start back there. What, what, or rather is, what is his skincare philosophy and what do you think that it is about his approach that was resonating with so many people? Yeah. Well, his approach, um, I'll touch on that first. Uh, and the reason I do think it has resonated over the years and why he did really create almost this or attract this almost cult following when it came to his patients. And it's still to this day, I mean, people will call from other states. Oh, can I come see him? I, I read something, you know, it's like he, he really embodies this idea of a well-rounded kind of 360 approach to wellness. So it's not just what's going on here or what you're putting on. It's what's going on inside. It's what you're eating. It's, it's your stress levels. It's your sleep. It's looking at your body internally and externally as a whole piece that works in conjunction with each other. And when something is out of whack, that's when you tend to see, you know, when we're talking about skin anyway, the breakouts, you know, the loss of collagen, um, dull, lackluster skin, what have you. So I really, I know (laughs) that people flocked to his practice because he wasn't just treating this. He wasn't just treating the like canvas of the face. It was kind of this whole approach to what are you using on your face? What are you eating? What are you washing with? What's your detergent? You know, really kind of breaking down things that seem simple, but you know, you may not even be thinking about could be causing the problem. And we talk about that today. I think a lot of people always ask us the, the common question is like, what's the one thing that you would recommend if I, if, to just get glowing skin or to correct my skin? And And so I think that we, you know, still talk about the philosophy that Dr. G has ingrained in the approach to skin health. And while we know about it more so than, than, you know, in years past, it still is a great reminder to make sure that we're looking at our sleep, our water intake, our stress levels, our movement, you know, our activity, what we're eating, and of course, what we're putting on our skin, but that's just one element to the overall pie. And he was really one of the pioneers in, in, in talking about that and discovering mm-hmm. that. I think people, you know, oftentimes go for a quick fix on something and never really, they're putting band-aids on the overall problem. Now we've used the word cult in there, which is so appropriate because the first real hero product that he developed was an exfoliant that we obviously now know as the doctor's scrub. I have a couple of questions on this because it is a pretty spectacular product. I have been pretty vocal on here and on social media about how much I dislike physical exfoliants for my skin, but the doctor's scrub, and I have said this on Instagram as well, it is one of the only scrubs that I actually love. I don't just like it. I love it. So I suppose my question is why, what is it about this particular scrub that makes it so, so different? 
I was going to say, you're not wrong. I think we're all, you know, a little bit more trepidatious to using something physical and, mm-hmm. and rightfully so. I think, um, you know, using something physical is not always great. And it really goes back to your skin is, is very tender. And when you're using a product or a mechanism that is a physical exfoliating agent that is not, that has serrated edges or it's jagged or it's not perfectly spherical, right? These cause micro tears in the skin. I remember growing up, it was always, I've always used like that St. Ives apricot, like bamboo. We've, we've all done that. Don't you worry. The greatest thing of all time. And, and, you know, many, many years later, I realized that that bamboo, like probably looks like caterpillar with a ton of spikes and was causing these micro tears to my skin. And so, you know, there's that. So we understand that. I think the the piece that makes Dr. Scrub so magical. And it's, it's actually how I sort of originally fell in love with my husband. He handed me this jar and was like, I'm going to, tr- you know, can you try this? I'm thinking about starting a skincare company. And I fell in love with this product and um, fell in love with him. But the product itself is so unique because of the formula and the way that it treats the skin in a safe way. And so Dr. G has been able to emulate what an in-office microdermabrasion treatment would be, but at home, safe enough for sensitive skin. And he utilizes a, a the ruby crystal, which are perfectly round spherical vault balls that are very small and finite in shape. So they, they sort of glide across the skin. They go in and out of these crevices, right? These mountain ranges, which are your pores, to safely and effectively remove the dead surface um, skin cells but it does not cause any tearing or abrasion to the skin. And then I think oftentimes when we look at something like exfoliation, no matter what type you're using, it's pulling away. It's, it's, it's taking away from your skin. And so sometimes we get like exfoliation crazy or, or, you know, we start, we tend to over and strip our skin. And so, um, which is not good, right. Then we have to sort of replenish it somehow. And so the doctor's scrub is mixed in with these incredible hydrating emollients that are all non-comeogenic. So they offer sort of the proper hydration for the skin, nutrients, vitamins, antioxidants, there's seaweed extract, there's jojoba oil, there's um, apricot kernel oil, there's organic red tea. So these all replenish the hydration and the nutrients and the vitamins back into the skin. So you're left with a polished complexion that is plump and supple, vibrant and healthy looking. Um, so it's it's sort of this magic sauce. And then on, on the flip side of it, I think what makes it so unique and special is that it because it's giving that immediate satisfaction of the actual exfoliation process, that's the first step. But then it also, anything that you're gonna put on afterwards is able to penetrate deeper into the skin. And so you're getting this incredible overarching treatment across the entire range of regimen products that you're using, not just doesn't just stop with Dr. Scrub. Well, that's good that I now have a sound bite that I can refer people to when they're like, why do you just like this scrub? Ta-da. It all makes sense go. now. Yeah. <laughs> Another question on the Dr. Scrub. If research serves me, it was this particular product that sort of set the wheels in motion for the brand. Can you talk me through this time? At what point did you say there is a brand to be created here? So it definitely did start (laughs) the train moving forward. And because it had been 
being used in the practice and sold to patients and given to friends and family and things like that. Um, we really, and it's a funny story with um, my brother, Rob, who's you know our, our president and CEO of our company and very involved in everything we do. He had some of this scrub when he had been in college. This is way back. And his fraternity brothers apparently loved this scrub. And after he graduated school, he, he like went to work on Wall Street and he was getting calls from his fraternity brothers being like, can we get more scrub? Like we need more. Oh and he God, was I like, these. I know, like, I don't know. It was like from my dad's, you know, no, you can't get more. You know, I'm, I have a job, like stop calling me. So, you know, I think that was kind of like the ding little light bulb that went off. And, you know, at the time there were a few really big doctor brands that were in the market. Uh, but there was nothing that was, you know, really this hybrid of what Gold Fat and MD is. And it was just one of those things, like, you know, when you just have a great idea and the ball starts rolling, it just kind of started rolling in that direction. And he just went to my dad and was like, I really think we have something here. We know people love the products that are created already. And you know, no one's doing this. There's, there's no derm brands that are out there that are formulating, you know, with, with um, botanicals and plant-based actives and things of that nature and offering kind of an alternative to the traditional high-performance dermatology brands. So let's build a brand. And I mean, you know, that's sort of how we all started putting these pieces together. So where do you go from there? It's one thing to be developing products for patients, but then, of course, another thing entirely to create a brand. So how did you go about it? How did you go about manufacturing on a larger scale, things like sourcing packaging, finding a designer? There are so many little bits and pieces that come into play. Um, I will uh, I'll step in here and say that, you know, that's that's something sort of the trajectory of a business like that is always evolving. But when we look back at sort of the originating foundation of the brand, we, you know, the DNA of the brand was there. And we were, I think, really fortunate enough to have that and that we had identified that whatever this brand X was, because we didn't know it was going to be called Gold Fat and MD at the time, but we knew that it was dermatologist developed. It was built off of the main reasons that men and women go to see their dermatologist. So it was really providing solutions to the in-office procedures that Dr. G had been creating out of his practice for decades. And um, so it provided solution-based formulas, right? That were safe enough for sensitive skin. So it was not like, it was, you know, sort of that you can take the doctor home with you and receive the, the highest level of treatment that you can at home, um, and then utilize these really innovative uh, ingredients that he had all this knowledge for. And when we sort of had that initial concept, we started, and this is, this is 10 plus years ago at the time, we met with dozens of branding agencies in the beauty space. I think some people thought we were crazy um, and we ultimately found a group, a design agency that really believed in our, in our concept. They shared in the same passion. They saw the vision. 
And so it was, it was about a two and a half year process of actually building out the story of Goldfat and MD. Who are we? Like, what is the archetype of this brand? What does the range look like? You know, what is the naming system, the copy? What's the tonality? Who are we speaking to? And, and that was a really fun, very arduous process for sure. Um, and from there, we, you know, we had many different concepts with regards to packaging and and looking back, I think we've went to every single trade show at the time when like trade shows are very popular. And we were just trying to find vendors that worked within small minimums and, you know, we could sort of piece together, um, which we were able to do. Now, I think things are a little bit easier from a logistical standpoint, but um, at the time we were really on the ground and, and meeting with different people and looking at you know, different materials and who, who could work with us and who believed in us. I think that was really ultimately sort of the, the, um, the, ult- the deciding factor in a lot of the, the vendors or, you know, team members that we ended up working with. It was in 2013 that you officially launched Goldfaden MD. As you've mentioned, the brand really was the first to bridge that gap between these doctor dermatologist founded brands and this clean beauty movement that was kind of having, I guess, a resurgence. It wasn't the first time it had come around, but it was it was starting to happen around that time. The disadvantage, though, of pioneering something so new is, of course, the education piece that has to come with it in order to get consumers on board. So what was the reception like on launch? Were consumers immediately receptive or did that take time? The consumers were pretty receptive, I have to say. I mean, I think the challenge was getting it to launch, right? So it was, you know, going, meeting, doing the meetings, doing the pitches, doing the this, the that, and the retailers, you know, falling in love with the product itself, loving the story, believing in us, but because it was such a new concept, they didn't know what to do with us. Hmm. So it would be a pass or it would be a, let's see how it goes in six months type of thing. And we just kept saying, but it's going to work. It's going to work. And once we then originally, you know, got that first shot and I mean, Lauren and I were, are still doing this up until the pandemic hit. I mean, standing on shop floors and doing events and whatever it took. And in the very beginning, I mean, we used to go to New York and we would just work a store. I mean, anyone we could get to sit down, if you can get it on their hand, they can see the difference, even the scrub on their hand. So it was sort of like seeing was believing. And because it's such um, an efficacious product and many of our products do have this sort of like instant gratification, you know, magic to them it didn't take too much to convince the, you know, the consumer. It was sort of like, you know, come into this world and this is why you need this. And this is why it's good for you. And, you know, this is, you know, what you need in your life. Like, what have you been using for the past 15 years? And so it was sort of this awakening. um, But, you know, now, I mean, it's a little bit different. It's not such a hard sell now because it's so deep and wide understanding about, um, you know, what you, what you want, what, what consumers want in their products and what they, you know, what they can go without. And, and they understand that there's alternatives to, you know, certain ingredients. So, um, 
I yeah, think to I mean, this point too, like we struggled with being new on that market. We were coming off of the end of and the closure of the natural space where it existed in the in a whole foods environment. Mm-hmm. Very, I mean that in, in in a in a way that that is considered was considered at the time very granola like. Yeah. And I think the association with natural products is that consumers thought that, you know, as soon as I open this, it's going to build bacteria and mold. And do I have to keep it in my refrigerator? And, you know, this enzyme mass really never worked and it actually caused me to break out. And, you know, there was no, there was no governing body regulating anything that existed at that time either. And when we launched the brand, we had, we had taken that natural approach and elevated it, changed it to a modern look and feel and talked about the efficacy part of it. And that was the, that's the, that's the pit of pivotal, pivotal sort of differentiation with the brand is that these are treatment oriented formulas that happen to just use clean actives. And I remember the first retailer that ever launched us, we were, we had signed the deal and she looked dead straight at our, at our eyes and said, I don't believe in this concept. It's not going to work, but I'm going to give you a shot. And we were like, okay, we're going to prove you wrong. And we did. We, the sales soared. The, the resonation was there. It happened. It was like this magical floodgate that just sort of opened up. And <laughs> so we were back in that office very quickly talking about, you know, <laughs> rollout strategy and, you know, <laughs> how to build that up. So I think it was, it was, a, it was about our like perseverance to get there and, um, and just keep, you know, treading forward. I would love to hear more about physically getting the brand into retailers, particularly after hearing that from your first stockist. How did how did the pitching process go and what advice would you give to any business owners that are trying to really just lock in the meeting and then perform in said meeting? Um, I think that that sort of goes twofold. Um, you know, the first part, I think, with getting in front of retailers um, can be really tricky, right? I mean, there's there's a lot of red tape. Um, it, it's not there's there's very few opportunities that you can get into an, a setting where you can meet with multiple buyers, multiple retailers. I think things are changing, but ultimately that's hard. So I think that the first is um, to even step further back from there, identifying as a brand where, what your distribution strategy is, you know, what, Mm -hmm. where do you want to be? What's your end goal? And what do you need in order to get to those places? Um, You know, looking at each move that you make as a stepping stone to get bigger, um, because I think if you're strategic in that way, um, you, you end up learning and strengthening as a brand and as a team along the way. Um, And the other piece of it is, I think it's very important as you go into a meeting, any meeting, once you get it, or you're displaying your product or you're pitching your product, it's the product is one piece. And yes, you need to be able to identify how this product is different and why it's unique and why it's better than anything else that exists in the assortment that you have at this retail space. But it's also about how are you going to support the business? Do you understand the business? And do you have, you know, the bandwidth in order to do so? Because that's where the selling is one thing. And then it's how to support the business thereafter is, I think, ultimately what people, what retailers want and need um, as part of a relationship. So I think it's really understanding the brand um, and, and where you can support. 
Do you recall which products you launched with? What did the lineup look like in 2013? Yeah, we we launched, you know, when we built out Goldfaden, every product really was built um, to be a hero product unto itself. Uh, however, when we launched, we decided to launch an assortment that could also, you know, really highlight the like most common issues that people were going to see their dermatologist being a problem solution brand. And then also being cognizant about the fact that, you know, even though everything was built to stand on its own, people do like a regimen. So, you know, it's, it's, listen, it's worked for a lot of brands where they launch one or two products and that those just blow up and that's great. But it does, I think um, it's useful to have, I think we launched with seven products the first the first round, and it was the Doctor Scrub, our Pure Start Cleanser, Bright Eyes, uh, a daytime moisturizer and a nighttime moisturizer, Vital Boost and Wake Up Call, Needleless Serum as that that treatment serum, um, and then that product liquid facelift, I think, right, Lauren, is that what we decided? Yeah. I couldn't remember the seventh one, but I think that basically was a regimen that you could pull together with a couple of specialty, um, and yeah. enough to be able to have some brand voice, um, and exposure on a shelf. And, you know, looking, looking back at that, it seems so small. Now we're at, you know, 22, 25 SKUs with kits mm -hmm. and, you know, it's expansive. On product development, how does that process work for the brand? Are you and, of course, Dr. Goldfaden constantly thinking about what will come next or are you working more off consumer demand? Um, I think we look at every aspect of it. Mm -hmm. We, from the very beginning, have a very astringent rule that we abide by in that in order for us to create a product, it has to be able to solve a solution. So it has to coincide with a problem that someone has with their skin. And so, um, you know, as, as human beings, whether no matter what gender or age, we all suffer from a, sort of the most equal common skin concerns, um, dull, lackluster looking complexions and blemishes and fine lines. And so I think identifying what that solution is, um, what the problem is, and then what our solution is, is first and foremost, we certainly look at trends. I think more than trends, we're looking at trends in the ingredient spaces. And so looking at sort of the innovation that's happening from ingredient suppliers, um, and, and, you know, the, the results that some of these new actives are showing, which is really incredible and super exciting. And then, from a formula standpoint, sort of identifying what type of formulas those ingredients can can work with, whether it be, you know, an oil or a water base, and you know, sort of identifying what that's going to go into, and then I, the the process of product development is is a really long one for us. It it takes about two and a half years from concept to the point that it sits on a shelf, um, because there's so many rounds of formula to make sure we're getting the right texture and slip. And if there's a scent, we have to test the, what that right sort of amount of scent that goes into there. And then we go through rigorous testing, um, and regulatory, uh, before that product even, you know, starts to get made and packaging ordered. So it's always evolving. If you looked at Lisa and I, our, our, our bathrooms, they're filled with lab samples. Always. We're always trying different things. The brand is now sold all over the world. It's in Mecca here in Australia. It's in Space NK. It's on Look Fantastic. 
so many places now. Based on product sales and also, you know, travel pre-pandemic, have you noticed any major differences in the ways that people approach skincare or even just in trends from region to region? Yeah, well, I I mean, uh, yes, for sure. Um, But being, again, like this problem solution and skin is skin is skin, and there really are, you know, 10 major things that most people are going to be suffering from at some point in their life or needing treatment for what have you. Um, it's, it's interesting though, because across the globe, the same bestsellers are always the same bestsellers, no matter what country it is. It's, it's just very interesting in that sense. So, but yes, do we see trends of course? And, and do, you know, I, I think, you know, Lauren and I have talked about this in the past that, you know, some maybe like French women in particular, I think start from what I understand at a much younger age, caring for their skin. There's like this real regime going on. I, we find that a, a lot of Americans kind of wait until there's a problem and then they're trying to mm-hmm. kind of like restore. Um, whereas I think maybe European understanding is a little bit more preventative. I think that's changing now. I mean, the the world has also changed a lot in the past year and a half, um, what we're doing at home to our skin and, and, and such, but yeah, pretty much across the board, um, people like the same things, no matter where they are on this big blue planet of ours. So it's, yeah. And I think to Lisa's point too, I think we're fortunate enough where if you have a, um, an area in which is the focus is on brightening per se, you know, we can obviously shift the conversation to just, you know, talk a little bit more about brightening, but it's, it's more about, um, the consistency with adhering to the solutions that of the mm-hmm. common concerns, um, rather than sort of adapting to various markets, I guess, if you will. You've touched on changes there. The two of you have been really a part of the beauty industry since before that launch in 2013, what have been some of the biggest changes that you've seen within the beauty industry over, say, the last few years? Gosh, Lisa and I talk about this all the time. <laughs> I think it's um, it's 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 a pretty straightforward answer, but obviously both have very robust sort of elements to it. But the digital space in general mm-hmm. is just it is completely evolved. I think I mean, in looking back when we launched the brand in late 2013, we put up a website to have more information, you know, available for consumers. I mean, yes, we was an e-commerce platform, but it wasn't a active, you know, platform in which Mm -hmm. we were focused on, on dollars where, um, now you have brands that are built to just be a direct to consumer brand. Um, and then the supportive sort of marketing and retail aspect is there, you know, it used to be that you had to go into a store and try things on. Now you can open up an app and see in real time how people are applying and they're describing the textures and, you know, just the experience of beauty has changed immensely because of the, the developments in the digital space. And then, you know, I also think that, um, we talk a lot about this of these, these, uh, you know, sort of multi-branded or multi-category merchandise outlets. You know, you can now walk into a yoga studio and be able to have, you know, an experience of sort of wellness products that are delivered to you. So it's like this, it's like a lifestyle concept now where you can shop clothing and 
skincare products and your and color and hair and I can also get a green juice there you know so I think it's just it's about sort of creating more storytelling moments within um within a shopping or a consumer's experience overall and what are some of the changes you think that we can expect to see over the next few years well, I think the digital space, of course, is going to continue to just boom, 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 um, which is really exciting for everyone. Um, I also think, and it's something that has has really revved up in the past, I'd say, three years, is this sort of like sustainability demand and um, appetite from the consumer. And the consumer you know, it's funny is it's like the consumer is kind of leading the way in that, like with that, in the sense that, and it definitely goes hand in hand with like the digital, um, like opportunities and platforms and what have you, but the consumer wants this, you know, they want to know where you're getting your seaweed from, and they want to know where your this is being harvested. And whereas I would say like five years ago, I mean, there might be like a subgroup of subculture of people who were into that, but now everybody knows like what sustainability means. And like, they want their brands to be transparent and they want to really understand what you stand for and who are the people behind it. And I mean, and it's wonderful. And I think our world is a much, you know, more transparent place um as we evolve as humans so it's it's just interesting to see that consumer so hungry for that my final question what is next for goldfaden md well we always have really uh, very robust product pipelines we have a lot of new exciting products to launch um, over the next 18 months um and expanding into you know categories in which are new for us like body um and and sort of evolving into those subcategories but we also have um, really expanded, I think, you know, to add one more thing into where things are coming in, just sort of the collaborative space. You know, you're seeing a lot of collaborations and partnerships um, happen that can be really powerful and impactful to tell an, a deeper story and have a much bigger meeting, meaning overall. And so we have um, some really exciting conversations happening right now and just sort of the collaborative partnership space um, that we're really excited to to come to fruition and share that news soon. Um, and just the overall expansion, you know, I think that there's just a lot, I think we're in, we're in a really interesting place in our world in which we've been caged animals for so long. Right. And we're mm -hmm. coming out and there's, there is a lot of sadness and a lot of closure, but un unfortunately, and, you know, I think with that, there's a lot of newness and a lot of, uh, you know, to Lisa's point, this appetite for, you know, just evolving as, as an industry as a whole. So, um, yeah, I think that, that there's a lot of, lot of exciting things on the horizon. That was Lisa Goldfadden and Lauren Walk Goldfadden, co-founders of Goldfadden MD, which you can find on Instagram at Goldfadden MD. To read this interview, you can visit glowjournal.com and for more beauty news you can find me on instagram at gemkwatts or at glow.journal if you liked this episode please do not forget to subscribe rate review and share so other beauty and business lovers can find us i'm Gemma watts you've been listening to the glow journal podcast and thank you for joining me